Well, we've gotten down to the table of nations and the Tower of Babel and the explanation behind why there are so many nations and languages and tongues and dialects, and we're going to just kind of jump right in. Genesis 10 begins by discussing and giving us the lineage of Japheth. Now, Japheth was the oldest, then Ham, then Shem. We discussed that last week. Then we get to the descendants of Ham in Genesis 10 as well. And I want you to look at verses 8 through 11 because there's one of his descendants that stands out. Beginning in verse 8. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, which we know actually meant against the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth and Calah. Now, what do we know about Babylon and Assyria? They would later be nations who would conquer the Israelites. Assyria would come in and conquer the northern kingdom, Israel, almost 150 years before Babylon would become the world power and would come in and conquer the southern kingdom, Judah, destroying Jerusalem and the temple and taking God's people into captivity. So we're seeing where they began under Nimrod, who established these cities. Warren Wearsby said, Nimrod was a grandson of Ham through Cush, and his name means rebel. He was a mighty tyrant in the sight of God, the first dictator. The word hunter does not refer to the hunting of animals, but rather to the hunting of men. He was the founder of the Babylonian Empire and the organizer of the enterprise that led to the construction of the Tower of Babel. So he is a rebel like the rebel Satan. So now the enemy is behind the descendants of Ham, working through them, and he's using Nimrod to establish a city by which he would seek to rebel against God's blessing on them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, to spread out over it and take dominion over the earth. H.D.M. Spence said, Babylon, the land of Nimrod, which it says in Micah 5, 6, the origin of which is described in chapter 11, verse 1, grew to be a great city covering an area of 225 square miles and reached its highest glory under Nebuchadnezzar. We remember that recorded for us in the book of Daniel. And then when we move on down in Genesis chapter 10, we get to the descendants of Shem. And Shem's third son, Arphaxad, is the most important in the entire list of nations because it was through him the royal line led to Abram and thence to Christ. Let's look at verse 25 in chapter 10. It says, two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg. And what does it tell us here? For in his days, the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. So we know that there were descendants Nimrod builds the Tower of Babel, and it was during the, the days of Peleg, the descendant of Shem, that the earth was divided. And then verse 32 tells us, These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now it's going to go back in Genesis 11 to what it was like prior to God scattering the people and confusing their language as we move in to chapter 11. So Nimrod was the ruler of Babylon and the one behind building the Tower of Babel. And let's look at verses 1 through 9 in chapter 11. 
Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they will have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confused their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So just like Cain before them, who God had said, you're going to be cursed and you will be a vagrant and a wanderer the rest of your life. And what does Cain do? He goes out and builds a city. And the evil one was behind Cain because he also was a rebel. He sought to build a life apart from God and on his own terms, not obeying what God had commanded him to do. So he builds a city. Now we're seeing this same thing happening. And we're going to see the evil one, the ultimate rebel, is the one behind all evil world systems. All people who think they can build a life or create a civilization apart from the Lord. Now what did they say about themselves? Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. We're going to make a sturdy structure. It's going to stand the test of time is what they're thinking. And then they said, let us build for ourselves a city and let us make for ourselves a name. So obviously this was not about the Lord at all. They were exalting themselves. Now let's just take a moment and go back and look at the ultimate rebel, Satan. We have some passages of scripture in the word of God that reveal to us where Satan came from, and it tells us something about him prior to his rebellion. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 is a passage of scripture with dual meaning. It was addressing an earthly king, but we will see also it wasn't just addressing an earthly king. It was also addressing the evil power behind the king. Verse 12 says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, sounds like the people of Babel, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, how did the enemy tempt Eve? God knows if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Be like God. He tempted her in exactly the way he had fallen. And he went after their pride, their desire to call the shots, to be in control, to be God. Then we see another passage that describes for us Satan, the ultimate rebel, in Ezekiel 28, 13 through 17. Listen to this description. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, 
the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settees and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. He was an archangel. He was in the very presence of God, a covering cherub around the throne of the Almighty. And I placed you there, God said. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now listen to this. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. We are just like the ultimate rebel. When we think we have things figured out or need to be in control and we elevate our reasoning above the word of God, we get in trouble every time and we then become just like Satan and we become rebels. When we look at our culture, we see it happening all around us. We see people elevating their reasoning, their desires above the word of God. And some of them claim to be Christians. Well, I know God's word says, but we have no authority to change the word of God. We are only obligated and blessed to be able to line up under his word and build our life on it as we obey it. Revelation 12 describes for us the scene in heaven when Satan was cast out of heaven and bound to the atmosphere around the earth. 12, 7 through 9 says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who is he? The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We know it was approximately a third of the angels that were cast out and caught up in the rebellion with Satan, and they are the ones confined to the atmosphere around the world, and the evil one is the one behind every evil world power. Every evil world system has the rebel behind it using people because we know our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, the evil one, the demonic spirits in the spirit realm. And we know that the spirit realm is eternal, that we are living in the temporary right now, but one day we will experience the eternity. The eternity. And we know that Babylon is also described in Revelation, and that Babylon, the city, that evil world system, is going to be cast down and ultimately destroyed at the end of time. But we have a promise given in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and that's going to leave us hanging for a future study at some point. Um, It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, well, you know what? Let's back up to verse 26 in in chapter 11 because that tells us where we get Abram, okay? He's going to be one of the descendants of Shem that are being described for us in the last part of Genesis 11. And it says, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. 
Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Izcah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now verses 1 through 3 of 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I wrote in the margin of my Bible, Go and I will show. (laughs) It's exactly what the Lord says to us today as well. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. We are to obey, and he tells us, go, and I will show. Obey me, and I will move on your behalf. And he said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we go back to that promise in Genesis 3.15, where God said, I am going to send through the seed of woman, one who will crush the head of the, of the serpent. And now God has chosen Abram to be the one through which his lineage would be preserved to ultimately bring about the birth of the promised one, the Messiah. So we're seeing the beginning of the Hebrews, the Israelites, God's chosen people, chosen to be the lineage through which the promise would be fulfilled. So we know that Abram's lineage blesses the nations. We are blessed. The Bible tells us that when we believe, when we come to Christ, we're literally grafted in to the lineage of Abraham. We are now God's chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, excuse me, a holy nation chosen by God. So we are his people, his representatives here in the midst of Babylon. So once we come to Christ, We are now citizens of heaven, citizenship in heaven, no longer citizens of this world. We don't belong here. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more uncomfortable we feel here. The more he captures our heart, the more we begin to see with spirit eyes, the less entangled we are with the things of this earth. In fact, we can look at our attachments to the world and tell how spiritually mature or immature we are. Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to literally lift us above the circumstances of this life so that we live for a city not made with human hands? Because we know we no longer belong to this world. And consequently, we don't get caught up in the rebellion of all those around us. Because we know right now we live in Babylon. We live in the midst of people who are rebelling against God and have created a culture apart from God, but we're exiles. We're here temporarily. We don't actually belong here, but we need to live like that. We need to live like we don't belong here, that we're not attached to this world or the things of this world. And when they lose their hold on us, we will live with incredible freedom and grace and victory. Regardless of what happens around us, we know to whom we belong and we know where we're going. We know we're journeying home and that one day we will see him. The first advent is described for us in the Gospels 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're about to celebrate it. We're entering that season where we celebrate the first coming of Christ as the suffering serpent, the servant, the, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, who would shed his blood for us on the cross, dying, being buried, but raised again from the dead, coming out with the keys to death, hell, and the grave, conquering the enemy. But for a brief amount of time, He's still free to move and work among the sons of men until Jesus comes the second time to ultimately defeat him. Think about this with me just for a moment. God's desire from the beginning of time has been to dwell with us. We mentioned that when we looked at God's creation at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, when we know that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, he would come and commune with them and talk with them. They experienced his manifest presence. He dwelt with them in the garden. We even made mention it was like the first tabernacle because it's there that God's presence dwelt among his people. And then when they were cast out because of sin and the way into the garden was sealed, they were without his presence, guiding them and speaking to them openly. God would come upon people and speak to them just like he called Abram out and set him apart and called him into the land that God would show him, a land that he was going to bless his descendants with, the promised land, and God would reveal that to Abraham. But God wouldn't dwell in their midst again until he gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle. And what did God say? Do it exactly the way I tell you so that I can dwell with you again, so that my presence can be with you. And we know the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, actually resided above the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant, the two cherubim covering that. It's a picture of the throne of God in heaven. And we read that Satan was once a covering cherub. Think about all that he knew and experienced. And yet he chose to rebel because he wanted to be God. And ultimately, that's at the root of all of our sin. We don't want to obey. We want to be God. We want to choose rebellion. You know, and when I think about it, I think, oh, God, that's horrible. I don't, I don't want rebellion to be in my heart because if it is, I'm lining up with the enemy of my soul. Lord, I want to die to every fleshly desire into the evil world system, and I want to live for Christ alone, which takes dying daily, denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Christ. He's given us the way forward in power and victory, but it takes death to the flesh. It takes death to our desires, to us being in control and choosing instead to surrender fully and completely to him. Well, we see his presence and, and the tabernacle was where? Right in the middle of the encampment. He was right in the middle. Everything was set up around him. He was to be the very center of their focus and of their lives, just as he is to be of ours. Well, when they dedicated the temple, guess what? The spirit of God came down over the Ark of the Covenant over the mercy seat. In fact, his presence was so powerful, the priest could not minister. Nobody could move. And then Jesus comes, and John tells us the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. He came to dwell with us, to reveal to us the Father so that we could know him experientially, and so that we might be saved by believing, by calling on his name. And then when he left, what did the Lord do? He sent his very presence down and individual tongues of fire over the heads of those gathered in that prayer meeting. And he now indwells us without 
consuming us because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. And when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. How amazing is that? That the God who desired to dwell with us, to be with us, to commune with us, has now through his Son indwelt us by his Spirit that we might be one with the Father and the Son through the Spirit, just as Jesus prayed for us in John 17. We can experience that intimacy as we walk with him on a daily basis, but it is a war because the evil one wants to not only destroy you, but destroy your witness, to keep you in doubt, to keep you in fear, to keep you discouraged so that you're not believing God, you're not taking God at his word, and consequently you will be impotent to impact anyone else. That's how he schemes against us. And that's exactly what we know from Ephesians chapter 5, that we are to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Just as God has a good plan and we are operating and living out of the victory already purchased for us in Jesus Christ, the enemy has an alternate evil plan because he's still trying to take as many people as possible to hell with him. But if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you've got a whole new inheritance. You have the power of the resurrected Christ living within your physical body. And nothing is impossible that he calls on you to do because he is able to do it and he will do it according to his power, not yours. And that's incredibly freeing to understand. When Jesus comes back, and that's what we're waiting on. We're waiting on the second advent because he's coming back just as we sang about him this morning. He's coming back as the victorious warrior to destroy the enemy. In fact, it's recorded for us in Revelation chapter 20. The devil, his demons, the antichrist, and his followers, along with death and Hades, are thrown into the lake of fire. Babylon and the evil one behind our evil world system are thrown down and eternally defeated, eternally bound in the lake of fire, we will experience the reverse of the curse. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we have the new heavens and the new earth. And I love the verses in chapter 21, 1 through 4, because we see that God's good desire to dwell with us will finally be accomplished. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, <clears throat> for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Hallelujah. My sweet friend that I shared with you about last week has seen Jesus this morning. She has beheld his face. And she is worshiping him in all of his glory. The Lord really prompted me this weekend to just kind of clear my calendar yesterday and go down. And I got to go and sit with her and spend the day in the hospital, be with her children. And as we were sitting there, the kids went out, somebody brought lunch, and I said, I'll, I'll stay. And I was able to stay and have an extended period of time just sitting with her. And I just opened my Bible to the book of Psalms. And so I want to encourage you, if you're ever with someone at this 
time. It's the holy moment. And I would encourage you to open the word of God. And I just started speaking psalms over her. I prayed psalms for her. I declared blessings over her out of the psalms. I pulled up Charity Gale and I prayed, speak the name of Jesus. And I was praying other things, just praying for her. But I was able to tell her, Charlotte, it's okay for you to go home. When Jesus calls your name, you're released. Your kids are doing great. I'm so proud of them. They've really rallied. And they've got a great network around them. We will stand with them. We will be here for your children. Because that's what believers do. We're family. So we are. This morning, I went back to Revelation chapter 19. Wow, what words of glory. What a scene we have waiting on us. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot, Babylon, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Charlotte is before the throne shouting hallelujah and singing at the top of her lungs. And I have told her many times, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to sing like you. We were talking yesterday. Charlotte is such a unique person. There literally is not another person like her anywhere. She had not a great concept of time because she was always all in whenever she was with someone. She noticed everyone. She loved everyone. And one of my earliest memories of Charlotte when we were together, a bunch of us were in Florida. There was a place down there that a lot of people from our church would go, and they invited us to come down one summer. It was before I had Bethany, uh, so that tells you it was like 30 years ago. And Charlotte and I decided one morning real early we were going to get up and go walk on the beach together and just have our quiet time together and pray and just worship the Lord and watch the sun come up. So we snuck out really early and got out on the beach, and we went out on the jetties. We were in Panama City, and you know the jetties, those black like rocks that go out into the, into the water. And so we walked out on the jetties all the way to the end, and we're standing on the end singing hymns at the top of our lungs. I thought I sounded as good as she did. <laughs> Y'all, I'm such a terrible singer, but I'm standing next to Charlotte, and I could just follow her voice, and the waves are crashing, so I'm thinking I'm sounding like she is, and we sang hymn after hymn after hymn after hymn, and we literally lost all track of time. I don't know how long we were out there, and so we're driving back, and all the, or walking back, and all of a sudden, I see my husband on some kid's bike, and he's riding all over the beach looking for us. He thought we'd been abducted because <laughs> we'd been gone so long. That's Charlotte. When you were with her, you experienced her all in, but you also experienced Jesus. 
Oh, that that would be the testimony of each one of us. That we would walk so in tune with the Holy Spirit that when other people are in our presence, they would experience the aroma of Jesus Christ. They would leave worshiping him and wanting to know him more intimately. May that be the desire of our hearts. Because ladies, he's coming back. He's coming back. And the Bible says his bride has made herself ready. Are you ready? I pray that you are. Because it could be any.